Welcome to The Seventh Art, a cinema podcast. My name is Christopher Heron. I'm the host of The Seventh Art. It is also a video magazine that you can watch at theseventhart.org. And I'm here with the other two-thirds of The Seventh Art, Brian Robertson and Pavan Mundi. Hey, guys. Hey, what's up? We're discussing our interview with Danish filmmaker Thomas Winterberg. It was one of our interviews at TIFF 2012. It was actually, what, the first, second, second, first? I it can't was, remember. Um, yeah, I think we had done one before. So Thomas Winterberg sat down with us at our gallery space uh, during TIFF 2012. Super, but, super happy to get him. I thought it was a huge get for us. Yeah, at I that didn't point. think we would be able to get yeah, him. Yeah, and he's, it was his first interview, actually, at TIFF. But uh, we're huge fans of his. Obviously, Festin is, is one of... Uh, my favorite films. It Is it obvious? One of his favorite films. <laughs> yeah. So, so Thomas Vinterberg at one point lists his top three or four films, of which one of them is The Celebration. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think he ranks number two. Yeah, yeah he has some humility. Uh, but no, it was a lot of fun, uh, this interview, because he is a very charismatic guy, and The Hunt was a film that a lot of people were talking about. The final... you, did you enjoy The Hunt? You love it, you love it. Yeah, I thought The Hunt was an interesting film. I mean, Vinterberg, he kind of falls between two camps in the sense that he doesn't necessarily make mainstream American films that are are seen by wide audiences, yeah. but I don't think he really has, since Festin, he doesn't really have that art house contingent right. uh, supporting him. But The Hunt is similar to Festin, it shares Yes, qualities. he talks about how thematically these two yeah. are related, although it, it does look more like his recent films, yeah, which yeah. is to say high production value. Yeah, it's um, not- one thing that's notable for this interview, and it's something that you should note if you're are about to listen to this podcast, having not seen The Hunt, which is that uh, we ruined the movie, I ruined the movie, fairly early movie. on Within in the interview. all of his films? So I don't know. That we talk a lot about endings, but... Well, know. it's a different story if you're talking about his older films, but Chris t- jumps right into the, f- the final scene. Of this uh, brand, brand new film. Of this brand new film that had no one seen. Uh, well, it had played at Cannes at that point. Let's, but let's I be fair. You were, you, I remember it happening. It was at least it was at least four months in the it. bank. I, I, when it happened, there was a publicist freaking yeah, out. Yeah, the publicist to the side. immediately reeled around and was signaling to me something like, "Stop this!" Yeah. And we kind of all just turned a blind eye and kept going. But I'm fine with that's the worst when the publicist is trying to give you a signal and you're just <laughs> yeah, staring yeah, at the yeah. camera. Oh, yeah. trying it, always, to it usually it happens, happens every time. It always happens at the end of the interview when when they're signaling to you that your time is up. Or when and we say like uh, we give the five minute signal and Chris keeps going. Yeah, for we'll like do another. five minutes and then it'll go on for fifteen minutes and then we'll do three minutes and it'll oh. be another ten minutes. I think that when they give you the sign and you say five minutes you feel time happening slower yeah. and like when you look at the actual moment when it's given versus how much is added it's like a minute but to go well, it's back different for you i mean it's different for you when we give you a five minute signal time is different but when i'm standing there and there's a publicist glaring at me but let's let's just point to the thing about there. the hunt which is that yes it was it was being ruined but we didn't we didn't publish the interview right away we published the interview in April yeah. so at that point it was timed for the release and yeah. uh, as the commenters on IMDB will mention like the great draw of this interview is the fact that we do discuss that ending beyond what there's no information in the film it's an ambiguous ending and we yeah. discuss kind of it's a rare occasion that a filmmaker or an artist talks about what's happening after but I, I mean I saw I saw the hunt on just recently and it's not as as ambiguous as I thought when you were talking well, what I'm getting at is that I mean to me I think it's pretty clear cut what happens yeah, yeah. but to be fair 
you're still assuming like you don't know and yeah. that's what I, I think we're getting at right. so if you haven't seen the hunt good time to not listen to this interview yeah, uh, but if you have you're going to enjoy it um, if you want to just skip ahead I think at the 10 minute mark we're done ruining the hunt and we're going into his other films yeah and- yeah there's a lot of great talk on, on all his films essentially yeah he kind of owns up to dear wendy not being a particularly good film yeah, and- hope you guys enjoy how has it been thus far when did you get in i arrived yesterday yeah and I slipped. Yeah. So this is. So this is my first interview. Oh great. Um, I did some press in Cannes. Yeah. Uh, that's a couple of months ago, so I'm a bit rusty, which may be good. Yeah, I'm hoping. Yeah. What is the press like there? Like, Depends. Because I've only ever, you know, seen the same things that everyone sees, where they get cornered when someone gets cornered and says something untoward, and then. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's been quite civilized and. I mean, there's a, there's a lot in a very short time. So it's a little bit of a factory, you know, you sit in front of the same camera with the same crew and you switch journalists. <laughs> and uh, that seems, you know, a bit like counting the cattle, but, but it's okay. People are prepared and it's, it depends on what time, what time of the week. By the end of the week in Cannes, you can see that people wept all morning because of all what, because of too much work and too much drinking. And they're getting rusty and soft and vulnerable, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> so you like the interviewers to be vulnerable. I like them to be run down. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a little run down. Because it's become sort of more honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, when you were bringing the hunt out there, um, you had, I guess, just completed it at that point. Oh yeah, very yeah. much so. We we had to hurry a little bit to, to get it to Kent, yeah. So now that like the dust has settled, I'm wondering um, maybe we could talk about what led up to the hunt between Submarino, like the process of kind of developing the, the project. Well, honestly, the, the writing of the hunt took some time because I wanted to shoot it up here. I wanted to shoot it as an American-Canadian film. But the topic seemed already when talking to my agent about it, he was like, it's going to be difficult to finance. You're going to have to use your own financial system for that. Which was great because I ended up then back in Denmark and with all my friends and, and somehow something real came out of it, which, which I think maybe is very good for the film. So it's interesting to be back here again with it. Uh, it was, the film is a little bit, you know, a mirror of something I did before. I, I did a film about a man, it's called Festen, the celebration. Oh, yeah, and, um, and this film was sort of meant to be the antithesis of that film, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, um, it's the exploration of, what happened to the people who did not do anything? It's, I drew the comparison when I saw it, but I, I'm not I'm wondering. I don't think I saw it as an inversion or an antithesis. 
I mean, there was one thing I found interesting is that the person who has committed the, the crime in, in Festin gets eventually exiled at the end, where there's kind of the reverse, where there's the exile and the bringing, bringing back into it at the end, but you get more of a dread that nothing's really going to fully be resolved there, even though it's a more seemingly happy ending than, than Festin. Like, some people have called it a, a happier ending because there mm -hmm. is that scene in the, uh, the what would it be, a lodge? Is that what it would be called? Like the, yeah. The, yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's the, the gunshot at the end, which kind of suggests that, you know, maybe this isn't <laughs> going to resolve itself. Yeah. Sort of a fringe ending, but but I mean, uh, it, this is where it started. It yeah. started with a um, ch children's psychiatrist knocking my door, saying, "You you made Festin," and I said, "Yeah." Then there's another story that you have to do. I was like, "Fine," and I shelved it and didn't read it. And then I think eight years later or something. I needed a psychiatrist, <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, I'll call this guy, and I better read this first. And it sort of came out as something I really found both very dramatically interesting, but also I don't like calling it important. I'm not a priest. I'm not a moralist. Mm -hmm. But I found that this needed to be addressed somehow. It's interesting, because I think by the end of the film, what I found to be the greatest influence of uh, adults on, on the on children was not obviously the abuse because it didn't happen, but the kind of influence that the community had on, I guess, Theo's son, mm -hmm. um, which to me is the real uh, thing that is being passed down through generations, which is this distrust. Like to me, I, I immediately assumed that the shooter at the end was his son, and it almost kind of reminded me of uh, Henneke's cachet, where you yeah. can see kind of the resentment of, of one generation being passed down to the next. Well, we did shoot actually a lot of scenes with Theo's son. And we also did shoot that ending that, oh, really? that you saw. Yeah. <laughs> but we cut it out to sort of leave it more open, and uh, which I'm happy about because I like it to be more sort of general. But, but if you get that feeling you've just picked up something that was existing in the material. Oh, really? Yeah, totally. I can say I can give you that ending. <laughs> I shot it, you know, and, and edited, it yeah, and saw it and, and threw it away. And the decision was to keep it just more open-ended for for what reason? Well, I like it. I liked it to be um, a question of faith more than a question of a kid. I know that's more sort of self-serious and solemn. But I liked that, and I also liked leaving the drama and make a bit of a mindfuck at, at, at the end. It's, um, it's very complicated. Sometimes you just feel what seems right and what seems like something you postulate, you, you, you claim. And this felt more right to me. And you say faith, and you've kind of described Lucas's character almost as like a uh a devoutly religious person, even maybe without the religion, but for his faith and kind of man will eventually realize um, there will be a humanity that comes out. And, and I'm wondering if maybe that theme, we could talk about it in relation to maybe, say, Fanny as the one character, if you can say a character, that is devoutly loyal, like is never going to second guess the, uh, the relationships. Um. 
Are we talking about the the religion, the religious aspects? I I was thinking religious in the sense of not specific specific religions, but devoutness to an ideal, maybe. In the sense that would be humanity. Yeah. Well, he's a bit of he's a helping character. He's a in many ways a good Christian Dane who, who sort of tries to carry people through their lives and, and who's very sort of open-hearted and very just, I think, and almost even chest in the beginning. That changes a little bit, but uh, so there is something godly about him, I guess in his own sort of very real, humbled kind of way. And, and you're right, his only sort of real friend is his dog, I guess. I, I don't see that as very divine, though. <laughs> but but, but um, there's his son, there's also his girlfriend, but still they're doubting a little bit. You can, yeah, you can doubt them easily. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess Fanny may stand for the absolute purity in, in this film. Or loyalty, at least. Yeah. That's right. It's very interesting to have these conversations. I mean, writing a script is uh, very naive, and even... Uh, it's not very... It's not full of analysis. It's flesh and blood. It's stupid in a way, and it's supposed to be. If you want to talk about love or revenge in a film, you have to give in to it and sink into it in its own banal way. Then after you can be clever, which is now. I think you know more about my film than I do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so maybe we can talk about the structure then. One question that occurred to me was that um, when you're writing it, it's the type of, there's a, a plot point that I maybe won't mention. Well, I guess we've already mentioned that. So when Fanny- You've, you've mentioned yeah, far yeah, too much yeah. already. <laughs> so when, <laughs> About when, the end and stuff, when, but you know. When Fanny dies, I'm wondering, like I understand the thematic importance of that, but it also seems like as you were writing it, it must've occurred to you that this is like sacred ground to go down. Like it's, it's one of the easiest ways to evoke a reaction from, from the audience. Uh, injury to beloved pets. And I'm wondering, to, like, the conflict that exists between going down that path or recognizing that there is a kind of maybe symbolic weight that transcends that. Well, the conversation between myself and, and the, the co-writer, Tobias Lindholm, mm -hmm. who's here with the film, by the way, as well. He's a director as well. Uh, was more, it's, was similar to the conversations we've had about the title. Is this too cheap? Simply. Uh, I'm not sure I like the title so much. No. I'm beginning to like it, because, but, that, but that's because I'm beginning to like the film a lot, maybe. But it's very one-to-one, -one, isn't it? It's a hunt, and then metaphorically it's a hunt as well. It's a witch hunt. Uh, and, and again, when you start hurting animals, it can also become like a cheap emotional trick. Mm. But we did feel 
but the animal was important to show his solitude, his loneliness. This is his friend. He doesn't have sex with anyone, and, and especially not his dog, of course. And uh, he's alone with a dog, which felt right for us, because it, it, felt, it felt lonely. And then again, as you say, since this is the most loyal friend he has, this is where we want to, this is where we have to punish him. That's the mathematics of drama, you know. Um, and I've ended up liking it a lot. Um, because it doesn't feel, I don't think it tips over, I don't think it's cheesy. Mm. But we were afraid of that, yeah. writing it. On a, a formal level, uh, one thing I couldn't help but notice was the kind of persistent zooms or maybe tracking in on characters' faces that you have as kind of a, a rhythmic device in the film. I was wondering... Do I have that? <laughs> um, well, the, the DP of this film, who also shot my last film, Submarino, um, she's got something very pure about her way of shooting, which I love. It's, she's not too mannered. So if we move the camera, if it tracks, it's because we've had a full two-hour, very deep intellectual conversation where I have to persuade her to move the camera. Uh, and, um, and, and then I've, had, I've succeeded to convince her that there's a reason to, to go towards these eyes. Uh, other than that, she's really trying to find the... the take away all the manners, find the purity, such as we did a little bit with Dogma back then. In, in, the same, in her own way, she's, she's pursuing that as well, which I really like for, for a story like this. Um, the tracking towards a character is a way, it's, it's, it's a rhythmic device, yes, it's, it's a way of emphasizing things and it's a way of pointing out things. It's a question of the music of the film, I guess. It also made me think of the fact that early on in the film there is the conversation between Lucas and Theo talking about kind of like the tell, like how he can tell when uh, Lucas is lying. Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of anal analysis of the face that mm -hmm. is also the crux of like, can you tell if someone committed something yeah. like this? Or do you put that into the face of people? Yeah. Um, well, for us that was a dramatic device, uh, you know. Um, of, that was going to tell that these people know each other very well. Uh, they're inseparable. And, and to emphasize the value of knowing each other that well was important for us. Um, and of course we also needed something to, how do you call that, to remove the spell at the end. Distanciation maybe? Like, is it like well, we needed here? a magic trick. Okay, I see, yeah. Suddenly he, they all find him innocent. <laughs> Uh, it's uh, writing, it's a lot of mathematics. Um, and then in between that, there's an emotional life and hopefully some, some truthfulness and some purity. But, but there's a lot of tricks and there has to be. It's, it's the way of framing a story, you know. And, and, and the story about the eyes and the truth from the eyes is very much about you know, bonding these people and pulling away the magic at the end. What do you call that? A spell? Yeah. When you yeah. put a spell on someone. Yeah. 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 
um, when you're when you're writing a project like this, and it, there's a kind of a tradition in, his, in cinema history of, of films like this, actually, like notable ones like Am, or even the, the tradition of the wrong man film, uh, where someone's been accused of something that they're trying to escape. And I'm wondering to what extent that Beyond Fest and what influence those films may have had on this. Not much. I mean, sometimes when I felt, when I suddenly, when I was writing and I saw Harrison Ford <laughs> running in front of a train, in front of, I thought, well, I'm on a wrong path. Maybe we should bring back, you know, Mass Mickelson and, and, and this emotional life. Uh, but other than that, it was more influenced by, I'm always influenced by the same four or five films, you know, I'm always, yeah, Festen yeah. in this one, and also Haneke was a little bit, you know, again, I find him very, you know, it's very, he's, I guess, the one very, the most interesting thing happening in European cinema at the moment, and, and, um, so those were the films, and then Deer Hunter, but then, again, we, we were also afraid of being too close to that, especially given the title. So we sort of pulled back from that and, you know, we found our own little world in this film. And what we tried to find was the purity and the truthfulness and the goodness of all these people, of all of them. Not only the dog or Mass Mikkelsen, but all the others. We, wind, we wanted to find the good-hearted, provincial, isolated Dane and see what happens when we, when we put this in, in a sort of Hans Christian Andersen kind of way. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a drop of evil put into a very beautiful little society. It was very important for me that there's a life before this happens. It's always important to me that there's a life before the film you're telling. That, that if this was not happen, happening to these people, there would have been a life existing and going on anyway. This is not just a plot. We talk a lot about pasts in every shot we do, in every scene we write. We talk about what is the past, what is the immediate past, right before, what happened right before, what happened years before, what have combined these particular people. Uh, and, and so we we're, we're trying deliberately to create a film around the film. What are they hiding from us? What are they showing to us? So what's below the film, what's above the film, and what's after the film, and what's before the film, so to speak. And that's a great deal of our work, is to create this life that is happening around the lake in the beginning. And, and viewers tend to be cued towards that with small town films because you, you're more aware that there are relationships between all of these people that pre-exist and, and a lot of reviewers have commented on this being you know, a small community um, and drawing a comparison to, to Denmark, but was it like specifically meant to um, be that localized or was that, that just happened to be the setting of a story that could realistically happen anywhere? I think this story could happen anywhere, but it, it has to be an isolated place. But there are other isolated places yeah, in Denmark, <laughs> especially here in Canada. Yeah. I mean, uh, it would have been great out in the big forests here, 
and, and, it, and when you watch the movie, you can still see some pine and some logs and a little bit of hunting, and which, which I guess is a small trace of the Canadian past that this film had. Um, and it was even Sweden at some point, Swedish at some point. But um, no, I guess it's about more about isolation and witch hunt than it's about Denmark. It's when you start the scenes of the kindergarten, they tend to become particularly Danish, I think. Yeah. There are some rituals and some kind of people there which I do find, which I recognize from bringing my own children up. That same kindergarten, actually. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> which for, for us was paradise. Um, yeah, it's especially true in that because it seems like such a forward-thinking, almost uh, alternative type of uh, kindergarten that like here would not be the standard kind of upbringing. We have a lot of those. It's, yeah. it's, you, you meet up in front of a bus and then you drive to the forest and then you're all day in the forest and then you come back home and that's how it works. Um, which may not be relevant, but it's interesting for me that the film that was meant to be with American actors ended up in my own backyard <laughs> and gained from it. It's a kind of a conflict that I'm carrying around. That I want to escape that little community that I'm a part of. It's a bit. It's a bit. Of, it feels like a shire, full of hobbits, good-hearted but stern little people. And it can be claustrophobic sometimes. So I'm trying and trying to get out. But every time I dig my hands into the soil of that country, people want to see my film. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, um, I'm struggling a little bit with that. There's also the kind of recurring theme of the parent I'm also interested in because it, almost all of your films have a strong relationship between the effects of one or both parents on uh, their offspring. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I think I have a, you know, I have a really, I grew up in a, in a commune. Mm. Um, like an intellectual freak commune, which was really great. I loved it. And I'm gonna make a film about that as well. But, but and I had some really, I do have some nice parents and it's not dysfunctional in that sense. I guess the, the family as a dramatic device is very, very attractive to me because it implies past. It implies a huge life around the film, just such a, as we talked about. It, it implies rituals, things we normally do, which for me is very rich. If I guess the, the finest thing I can accomplish with, with a film is to create a character that stays with us or a situation that stays with us, that we can all sort of relate to, talk about, um, and that feels vibrant and existing. Then you've created life, I guess. And, and to do that, family is a really, really great, solid place to start, dramatically. Mm -hmm. That being said, can we like maybe switch to the form? Uh, and I want to talk a bit about uh, maybe the color palette used in the hunt versus Submarino and um, 
uh, man comes home. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those three... when a man comes home was orange. Yeah, yeah. And uh, some Reno was very blue and gray. And this one tried to be both. We wanted to, you know, we wanted to step a little bit out of the darkness of Submarino. Submarino is I, probably the darkest film I've done. And it's very economical maybe, too, kind of. Maybe, and, and maybe also the purest. Yeah. I'm proud of that film. I'm not proud of all of my films, but I'm proud of that film. Uh, this one, wanted, we wanted a bit more body, a bit more orange, <laughs> a bit more warmth for this one. Uh, I don't know why, actually. I think maybe because we felt that this little disease, this virus, this, we considered the thought as a virus in this film. This is sort of how we looked at it. And we thought it has to destroy something very beautiful. It has to be a heart that beats beautifully in the beginning and then then all the darkness can appear slowly I guess that's some of the thoughts also uh, I, I would dry out if I constantly make very dark movies yeah. it is a dark movie but I need we need some air we need some some warmth and Submarino is also it's less dark than the book, if I understand correctly, too. Oh yeah, the book is very bleak. <laughs> so what drew you to that that uh, subject or the the source material of uh, Submarino, the book? Well, mm, coming from a, when a man comes home mm -hmm. and a time of my life which where everything completely fell apart, my marriage, my career, my economy, everything. Dear Wendy and When a Man Comes Home, those weren't commercially successful. No. no. Um, and I felt trapped in my own sort of circus somehow. Um, Submarino offered me an opportunity of starting over, of, of starting back, with making a film almost like I did at film school. Uh, it, it's. There's, it's so no nonsense, so no bullshit, this story. And it struck me so hard in my heart. And it, and it was about parents' guilt as well, which I felt a bit at that time because I just had a divorce and my kids were suffering from that. So it just hit me from many sides uh, and felt like the right project at the time. And it was. It was sort of a cleansing process of some kind. I felt, a, this is a big word and it's too, maybe too much, but I felt a bit of a rebirth doing, doing that film. Well, you were working with so many, you were, there was the stipulation that you had to work with so many first-time uh, crew members. Yeah, yeah, that was great. You know, again, that's why, why I also felt that I, I was back at film school. Um, yeah, it was part of the financing that a part of the crew and a part of the cast should be first-timers. And I totally lo love that. You have to start over sometimes. And you have to get rid of your manners. And you have to avoid being repetitious. Being repetitious uh, makes me feel old. Makes me feel, it reminds me that I'm going to die. And uh, being on thin ice 
opens you up, makes you childish, makes you curious or cautious. Again, and so I constantly have to find places where the ice is thin. And that, that's how I felt with Submarino. And I can see exactly what you're saying and how different it is from uh, When a Man Comes Home, which, but I, I still think that that's a very interesting film. And it's interesting because I think maybe critics at the time found it slight, like maybe it didn't have the weight, the dramatic weight, but visually it, it's so bizarre, like especially <laughs> compared to the rest of your work. And I'm wondering if you could talk. I wanted it to be more bizarre. Yeah. That's what I feel I failed with this movie. I, li I really like the movie. I met my wife doing that movie, and, and it's full of what I love about Denmark, about you know, the warmth and the cornfields. And, and, and so I, I like the film, but I felt I was a little too civilized. Even with all that soft light? <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of soft light and a lot of you know, backlight. And, but no, I, there was a slight sense of madness in this film which I think could have exploded much more. Uh, the madness of the film is what I like. The warm madness of the film, the Fellini kind of. And I don't feel we went all the way. I was too afraid, I guess. Mm. There are some like, striking moments, like visually, the, the, the dinner table with the balloons falling, um, when he first meets the, um, what's her name, Maria? Maria? I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like those are maybe some of the most striking images in your, your filmography. That's good. I'm glad you say that. Uh, no, that is beautiful. We also waited a lot for the light department <laughs> doing those scenes. Now, uh, to contrast that somewhat, the um, Dear Wendy seems like visually it may be the least elaborate. Uh, at least in my estimation of, of your work. Yeah, same DP though, mm -hmm. Anthony Mandel. Um, Dear Wendy is not my film. Mm -hmm. It was the first film that I've done which is not mine, which was a very interesting and also very complicated experience. Because I suddenly, constantly felt there was something out here that I <clears throat> had to pull towards me. Yeah. I felt that the little family I made with the actors and Jamie Bell and all these wonderful personalities, that created some real life. And I was really, really focused on that, trying to get away, away from the mani manipulative elements of the stories, trying to overcome this dramatic setup, which was very difficult to make truthful, mm. that a person falls in love dearly with a gun. <laughs> it's, it's a theory in a way. Uh, it's very much Lars von Trier, and, it's, and we're two different churches, right? So I guess I was, I was so, so focused on that, trying to create life among the actors, that Anthony had to stand back a little bit. I remember doing takes, you know, 17 minute long takes and stuff like that, which, which gave him less of a chance to be prepared to do something striking and beautiful. But I did, I did like it though. I thought it was beautiful. He's, he's an absolutely brilliant photographer. 
was that a project that you felt maybe <clears throat> either needed to be to go down that absurd route a bit more or to dial it back because it seems like it's pulled in two directions kind of as, as you're describing well it was an experiment yeah. and it was uh, the ultimate sort of collaboration between Lars and myself and also the end of our collaboration so to speak we, we're still friends and yeah. read each other's scripts and and we're in the same company and stuff but for me it was the finalization of something we had going on from, through the 90s and um, I found it interesting that he's so he's so much form he's so much regarding life from heaven he's a god he's moving around his characters in a, too, right? in a chess game yeah. totally yeah. and uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a confused intuitive emotionalist uh, trying to find, you know, real life between them. So we, we come from two different corners of, of perception. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting to try to combine these things. And I think maybe it, we succeeded in moments mm -hmm. in that film. And those moments I love. Uh, but I'm not sure I, never, I ever over, overcame the feeling of I found, I found it complicated to fall in love with a gun, emotionally. <laughs> that is a theory, again, you know. Well, it seems like what you're falling in love with as the director in that film is maybe more the sets and the mise-en-scene, the, like not the gun as a gun, but maybe like the, well, the, the community that they develop. The togetherness and yeah. the escape, yeah. for me, was very important. I, I felt a great disappointment of growing up. And that's what I feel they do. They would rather die than become grown-ups. And I totally understand that. And I remember that age. Uh, you don't want to float into the stream of boredom and normality. Then you, would, you, you have to radically resist that somehow. And for me, this, is, this became this, the ultimate story about that. They, they, they would rather go to war against establishment and against growing up. And in that sense, it becomes escapism and stuff, but, but it, it becomes a story about not wanting to grow up, which I find, found touching. Um, and which, which is what hooks me in, in, in the film. That's something people have observed in your films, this kind of childlike quality, even with the adult characters. And, and, and there was a comparison to Lucas, this kind of being very childlike in his yeah. own way. In he's very childlike. Yeah. He's just like a child. He's, 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 you know, and he's got the same naive belief in other people. He's got this good-hearted, open belief that of faith in his uh, surroundings, as, as a child has. That's right. I didn't even see that doing it, but, but that's what we did. You know, the character was very different in the script. Oh, really? The character was more a deer hunter, man a few word, words, tough guy, uh, you know, wearing a hoodie, you know. You know um, and then Mass came on board. And then I suddenly felt it was less interesting and we could come down, you know, go down another route with him. 
because he's so beautiful and so striking and so manly already. So I felt, mm, let's, try to, let's try to flip it around. And he was totally up for that. So that's where we made him a school teacher uh, and humbled him and made him so caring. Uh, the other Lucas, the Lucas in the script was more sort of independent and isolated and, you know, at peace with that. Whereas Mass's interpretation of Lucas has become very sort of, um, he wants something from his surroundings a little bit. And he's very childlike. That's why I think my favorite moment in that film is the moment, it's very brief, but it's when his son is using the lighter to look at the photos oh, yeah. of him and Theo when they were younger. Because I think it both suggests the kind of past that you're, you're describing, mm -hmm. but it also makes you realize that because he looks so different and mm -hmm. there's even a personality shift, it seems more carefree and, and maybe wild, um, but you don't see that and it makes you wonder what you can deduce from a person from just a brief moment of their life. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I was shocked to see that photo of him as well. <laughs> and uh, it does show a completely different person. That's right. I always work like this. I always write something and then when there's actors around, then I start, you know, rewriting for them, with them, in, in a sort of collaboration. Um, so that there's, there's, there becomes some kind of resonance in, in, in the characters. Um, and trying to avoid the predictable character. Uh, trying to find the irrational human being that, we're, that we all are. And, um, and we're doing a lot of work, a lot of conversations, a lot of rewrites. And a lot of conversations again on, on the set, preparing, 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 up until the moment where the camera flicks on. And that's where we let go. So it's sort of creating a foundation that has to be as solid as possible and as nuanced as possible. And then maybe you can get those moments that you can never direct or ask for. But but that comes out of preparation, out of being, feeling free from being very well prepared, you know. And, and Mass was very eager to dig into this as well. He's a fantastic guy to work with. He's um, constantly asking questions and constantly wanting to improve the situation, constantly attacking stuff that seemed unbelievable. And so do I, so it's, it was, you know, very, very intense uh, collaboration, which I really loved. How much um, adjusting or, or rewriting happened for It's All About Love? Um, which I should also mention is my favorite <laughs> film. <that> ah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> it's All About Love is my troubled child. Whoopsie. The inside? Yeah, it's just It's All About Love is my troubled child in the sense that it's the one I love the most and it's the one that behaves worst socially. I don't understand. Well, maybe it's because I didn't see it when it came out, but... Well, I do understand. Because dramatically, it's 
at moments totally dysfunctional in, in a normal, dramatic context. And, and film has become the most conservative art form. And so, and that makes the audience very lazy. You have to go to France to make people understand something just a little bit challenging, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and it's all about love was sort of a poem, a worried uh, sight into the future, which, um, which I love talking about. I've, and, um, but the character work on that film was more difficult because I did have some rehearsals with Claire Danes and, and Joaquin for a week or so, but they, they're Americans, they're not used to that. Uh, and they were so interesting to look at already. Uh, but, but yeah, we did it. We did, we did the same thing. But, but it's all about love was, was about so much other stuff. And it was so, such a big machinery. I really enjoyed doing that film. I, I want to ask about the Sean Penn character and kind of what you were looking for from that element of the story. Well, the man in the plane is a character who, instead of having fear of flying, has fear of not flying. And for me, that was a, a comment on modern living. A, a, a living in a constant transit, constant movement. We're moving around all the time with our work. We, we, we bring our own little platforms and we sit and ride and we communicate. And we're in, in, in constant transit, which means that we're everywhere, but, but nowhere at the same time. It means that people sit at home with their families and eat dinner, and they're somewhere else. And then when they go on journeys or when they work at film festivals, they miss their children. So there's a constant lack of sinking into situation. And for me, we claimed in that film that makes love impossible. You can't make love on a phone. You can't, re you can't really live among other people in constant transit. And that's why we had people dying in the street. And that's why we had the man in the plane, sort of as, a, as, as the two, what do you call, the, outs polar. the polar opposites of, of that film. I could have made a whole film about the man in the plane, but someone else did. Uh, this film, it was this film not so many years ago. Oh well, whatever. But, but um, I loved that idea that he was, he was afraid of not flying and could have made many more scenes with that. He's also on the periphery of the story, like he's not in it as much as any of the other characters, no. but he also ironically kind of has the most wisdom about the, the situation to yeah. some extent. He's kind of a godly figure. Mm. And it was Sean Penn. He <laughs> had a couple of days in his calendar, you know. Uh, so, so that all had to fit together. It's, uh, filmmaking is a, you know, a clash between high ideas and reality. <laughs> and uh, I think he actually ended up shooting Sean Penn in a one 18-hour day. <laughs> so he had to be sort of 
you know, a frame of the story, not, not partaking in it. When you were describing the kind of shots and the, the hunt of the eyes, that made me think of, of the shots of Joaquin Phoenix's uh, eyes and watching things on TV specifically in yeah. It's All About Love. And I'm, I'm wondering, the kind of platforms are talking about what, how the Kenyan storyline and how it's transmitted via uh, TV and how they're the, it's a repeated shot of Joaquin. Like it's very close to him, but there's not really the access to how he's reacting to what's going on. I'm wondering if you could maybe expand on, on that. Well, as far as I remember, the, what we tried to show was the absurd indifference that appears in people's lives from being constantly nowhere and constantly everywhere. Then you can see the most absurd tragedies from the world surrounding you and not feel it. And then I try to show that Joaquin picks it up and worries and start worrying about the whole world and start, starts getting the feeling that it's all gonna end. Uh, there was, I felt this was a sort of caring apocalyptic moment. I think that's what we tried to do. Um, and he does have these very soft, vulnerable eyes, Joaquin. So it was wonderful to, to shoot that particular shot. It's a film where the melodrama is maybe ratcheted up the highest. And I mean melodrama in the literal, like the genre of the melodrama. Yeah. But it's also a sci-fi film. It's maybe like your only real genre film. And that's so subtle. So you have like the melodrama is, is dialed up and you yeah. have this genre element that's very, very uh, almost you can miss it if you, you aren't paying full attention. And I'm wondering how you balance that, those two kind of generic points. It was very diff difficult and it was very much about the music as well. Mm. Uh, the uh, the Kislovsky composer um, Spigniew Preisner, my good friend, when he came on board this project, we allowed ourselves to be melodramatic. He's a real Polish act, um, you know, artist, taking himself totally serious, which I love about him. And he also took the film very serious, and he gave it sort of the melodramatic, apocalyptic grand dawn, which really upped that part of it. And so the music was very much a, a part of that. Um, the science fiction element was always, for me, meant to be very subtle. Uh, in order not to create sort of a layer between me and the audience. And, and um, I think we succeeded in many moments. I found it very difficult in the, in the snow at the end. We didn't, have, we didn't have the money to shoot it in real snow, which I think was a compromise for the film. <laughs> and also there were some absolutely wonderful scenes in the film, in the script that, never, that we never made. We had a scene where all water in the world froze to ice in a flicker of a second, with, with children in pools freezing and, and, and what, what do you call these water stations exploding oh, yeah. and stuff like that, which was absolutely wonderful and a great symbolic value and just not affordable. <laughs> I think it's improved by it though, because that, that, it makes it that much more subtle. Maybe and so. And it gives like a, a a limited range to what you know is happening in the world. Mm. Maybe so. I, 
It's very interesting with this film. It sort of appears more and more places, especially from young people like yourself, you know, and women. Oh, really? Yeah. Men of my age, they don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. It's, uh, it's very interesting. Um, I'm very proud of that film. Uh, even though it was some very painful years right after having done it. Why is that? Because nine out of ten people didn't get it. And, and that's very painful. Yeah. Especially when you've used, you know, you know a certain amount of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and also, especially when you've made this monster of a film that is, it was, even though it was big somehow, and with movie stars, it was very, very vulnerable. It's, it's a vulnerable film. Jo Joaquin is such a vulnerable character in it. And uh, so it was easy for the, f for the reviewers and stuff to, to kill it. So that was painful. But still, for me, it's the most important film I've done. Thank you. Thank you. Was it okay? Good. Very good. Thanks so much, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you.